You're listening to a sound very familiar to all of us. It's the sound of fans rallying behind their teams. We hear it every Saturday and Sunday during the football season. We hear it at baseball parks around the country, especially now during playoff time. And internationally, we hear it from perhaps the most rabid fans of any sport, those who follow soccer. Yet an Emory University professor who studies fan behavior says that some of that enthusiasm may be waning and sports popularity is down in the U.S. even since last year. We'll find out why sports fans react the way they do, speak about the recent soccer riots in Indonesia, and cover a whole lot more as we welcome our guest today, Mike Lewis. Mike is a professor at marketing uh, of marketing at Goiswata Business School in Emory. His work focuses on the intersection of sports analytics and sports marketing. He studies issues ranging from, well, just about everything related to fan behavior. He's also our first repeat guest here on Sports Across the Board. So, Mike, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Gary. It's a pleasure. So just to refresh our listeners a little bit, tell us about how you got interested in fan behavior. You know, I think we've all got stories of careers, right? And, and so I've, I've been a marketing professor for decades and always focused on consumer loyalty and consumer passion. And, you know, probably about a decade ago, I decided to really focus on, you know, maybe the most interesting part of that. And that's this idea of true fan behavior. Look, I mean, you might have a favorite airline, you might have a favorite soft drink. But it's just not the same as your favorite college football team or your favorite baseball team. And look, I'll even take it further. I think fandom is actually something really important. I mean, you mentioned soccer. We're also in the middle of the political season. You know, Stacey Abrams, Herschel Walker, these folks have fans. Absolutely. You specialize in sports analytics, player performance analytics, and brand equity. Can you give us just a little rundown on exactly what those are? Okay, so by way of training, I'm a statistical modeler. So... uh, the, the tools that we can use to study how, let's say, consumers are going to behave, in some ways, they're not that difficult to adapt to how athletes are going to behave. I mean, so it, 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 might, be, it might be a little bit of a different direction than what we're going to talk about today. But I've spent a lot of time talking about quarterback performance statistics. Um, it, 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 that, that might be my actually my main passion at the moment. I mean, look. NFL is the king of American sports, and the leading man for all of those teams is the quarterback. And so in some ways, it's the perfect combination of performance and, and marketing. Um, brand equity. Brand equity comes into play in something like this. The Atlanta Braves are a team that everyone in Atlanta, that a big part of Atlanta loves. And then some extent, they're a brand that people love. I mean, people don't think of it as a brand, but so when we're capturing what that fan loyalty is, is worth, I'll, I'll lapse into marketing terminology and call it brand equity. Okay. Sounds good. You just had a, uh, a new study released, and it says that popularity in sports has gone down. That's kind of surprising. So tell us a little bit about that and how you came to that conclusion. So one of the things I've added to my portfolio over the last couple of years is an annual survey on fandom. And, and so we go nationwide. We get... Uh, a group of people across the different generations, everywhere from you know Gen Z, thirteen to twenty six years, twenty six year olds, all the way up to the baby boomers, um, and you've kind of already given part of the punchline away. When the results came back this year, 
it was kind of striking that fandom was down relative to to last year. I, I was a little bit. It's it's nothing that I anticipated. I was I thought we would actually see a rebound uh, post COVID. You know, people were back in the arenas. To some extent, they're back in the workplace. They can talk sport. They can talk. You know, the playoff game tomorrow. Around, uh, to some extent, I'll tell you what I think though. <laughs> what I think, and, and the great thing about being a professor is I can continually learn too. I think sports fandom, when you measure it, you're actually capturing something bigger. You're capturing the mood of the country. And so we did this survey at the time when gas is gas was spiking up to, you know, 450 a gallon. The war had just started in Europe. And I think sports fandom kind of reflects how much people, you know, how, how much they're engaged and how much they're happy with the culture. Interesting. You also mentioned um technological changes, demographic changes that impact uh, sports fans and this new situation we're in. Yeah, I mean, do you have kids, Gary? Yes, I do. Three of them. Okay. Do they watch the TV or do they uh, watch their phone? Do they watch this little screen in their hand? Well, <laughs> well, let me tell you, the kids are a little bit older. Okay. The grandkids, however, yes, that's all they do is watch the little phone in their hands. Yeah, and, and I think, I mean, you know, people have noticed this trend, right? There's this idea of cord cutting with the idea that sports was the one thing holding people to cable to cable TV subscriptions. But I think there's something something more to it. When I grew up and, you know, when you were raising your, your kids before the grandkids, there was usually a TV in the household that was really kind of the central conduit of, of information, of entertainment, of, of sports. That doesn't exist, Right. Everyone's sort of off in their, their separate corners. And I think that's that's a fundamental shift in terms of how fandom works. Right. It, it's no longer a situation where, you know, there's one TV in the house. Dad's going to watch the Falcons or the Bears or the Giants and the kids are going to watch it with them. Right. That that's that's gone for the moment, at least. Yeah, it's interesting because, uh, in fact, two of my grandsons were in uh, last week and we're talking mm-hmm. about news and they never watch the news. In fact, they rarely watch television anymore. So you're right. They're tied to uh, computers or some other means of uh, communicating. Yeah, they're, they're probably, uh, you know, based on their age, they're probably looking at their phone for Snapchat or Instagram. Um, they're probably absorbing, getting a lot of their content from YouTube. And they're not set up and they're not geared towards watching. They're not geared towards watching a three hour baseball game. <laughs> I don't think any of us are, and hopefully the changes that are coming up in baseball will help that situation, the, the pitch clock and all that, but that's a, a subject for another time. Um, you mentioned about COVID, and that certainly has changed things, but like you said, you, you would think that would bring people together and maybe uh, have them focus on their TVs more, and that maybe that would carry over. Like I said, what I love about this topic is I I get to learn as I investigate this. And frankly, I've become really a believer that, you know, community and generational forces really are this major factor in in fandom. And so, you know, maybe during the COVID lockdown, we were kind of trapped in the house altogether. But again, there was no pull towards during COVID. We didn't sit around watching you know, the, the NBA playoffs from the bubble, right? I mean, the kids were still doing their, they were still doing their thing. Um, 
so it's, but I, but I think it's, look, I mean, I, and I don't know about, you know, other folks or, or yourself, I've noticed a change. You know, we, we're back to campus at Emory, but that, that building's like a ghost town, right? I mean, we've gone to from, let's say, 60% attendance from faculty to, you know, maybe 20% attendance. And I suspect that's true across the board. And I think that's just, you know, the, the community structure has been largely kind of fractured. And I, and I think it's, it's underappreciated. I mean, people talk a lot about post-COVID disengagement. I think that's a big part of the story. Interesting. Um, and it all happened kind of suddenly, I guess. Like you said, 21 to 22, a one-year span, and yet things have changed uh, dramatically. And, and perhaps permanently. Mm-hmm. And, and it's reflected in uh, what you said, uh, faculty go- not going into the university as they used to. Uh, and you see that in business as well, uh, which... And it's surprising that they're still building so many uh, high-rise office complexes. But it's happening. Um, Are fans as fickle as we sometimes believe? Do they abandon their teams when things are are going bad? Uh, Or or are there still a goodly number of fans who stay with their teams, like back in the old days again? I think, okay, so one of the things that I think is special about sports fandom, and and you can contrast this with all sorts of other kinds of fandom, you know, fandom for music or movies or personalities, is that sports fandom had two kind of key components, right? You could be a sports fan of, you know, from like age six to age 90, right? It, It was a... It was something that went on forever. And, we, and we, we don't get that with musicians or movies, et cetera. And it was also tied to this local community, right? When you were an Atlanta Braves fan, well, you were connected to everyone in Atlanta. And, and so my, my feeling is that sports fandom is incredibly resilient. And what we might be seeing is a lot of, let's say, cultural disengagement. Um, sports might be the last sports might be the last man standing to some extent, you know, sports has been the great unifier. Um, I think it can re look, Gary, I I went to the university of Illinois and university of Illinois football has been a wasteland for, you know, for 15 years since Ron Zook went on a little bit of a run. They're five and one this year. And you know what? I'm back in. Right. So, so there's always this magical thing about sports that I think is fairly unique. Is it more about the individual or is it more about the teams? For example, teams are now trading people all the time and you've got all these other new wrinkles uh, coming into the, the picture. Um, so is, uh, I guess the question is, are sports in general, kind of turning off fans or are just fans because of these other issues kind of going away from sports? You know, I think, I think it varies. I think in basketball, it's about the individual, right? I I think the NBA is more integrated into pop culture. So LeBron James and Steph Curry, they're cultural icons, right? They are, you know, they're going to be the folks that are appearing on late night TV shows and having 100 million plus Instagram follower uh, followers. Uh, baseball, I think, is more of a team local sport. So it, it's I think you're seeing 
inadvertently, the leagues almost pursued different strategies. Now, but I, again, I always have to come back to something. The NFL is probably the last mass market sport, right? This the, the event structure of Sunday Sunday afternoon, uh, Monday night football, uh, fantasy sports. You know, the NFL is the one thing that actually still, you know, gets everyone together. You know marketing probably as well as anybody. Do you think good marketing can overcome a bad team? I mean, if the Braves weren't performing as well as they were, would there still be fans in the seats? Uh, the, my marketing brethren will hate my answer to this. You know, the, the most successful chief marketing officer of all time was a guy in the NBA was a guy named Michael Jordan. Right. I mean, he no one no one knows who worked for for the Bulls and marketing in in the mid 90s. And so that is the you know what marketing can do. They can help you capture and retain the love that the players generate. But you've got to you know, you've got to have that special product on the court or on the field. Um, marketing in sports kind of works around the it works around the edges. And, 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 you know, frankly, as a marketing guy, I think that's kind of a healthy observation that it's the excellence of the product, not the not the flash. Right. Not the not the the the, the, the new colors on the uniforms, that it really is the core that the people love. But I'll, I'll counter with this. Have you heard of the Savannah Bananas? <laughs> they are drawing scads of fans. And uh, for those who don't know, they're a uh, kind of a novelty baseball team based in Savannah. I don't know that they're part of any real league, but uh, their antics, uh, plus the name itself, I think, uh, really appeals to people. Well, you know, and, and that's, a, that's a, like an interesting side note, right? I mean, I, I think across the world of minor league baseball, we've seen these kind of fun names over the last few years. It, it, when you're talking about the, the bananas, it kind of reminds me of, and maybe you didn't, they didn't get a lot of press down here, but the St. Saint Paul Saints in the 1990s were known as kind of this, this very family-friendly minor league team that, that drew great. I, I think what you've got to realize is that in some ways, those kind of clubs are, they're doing something different, right? They're selling a different product. They're selling something more of the, the, the experience of taking your, your kids out to the ballpark. Um, can you replicate that at the big city level? You know, that, that's the real question. Good point. Um, there are a number of other teams, I think, that have tried that, particularly on the minor league level. I think, uh, think you're right. In the bigger cities, there's some of that to a certain extent. Your mascots and, and of course, in college, you've got the bulldog and you know, a number of other things that attract people, but still not strong enough to overcome what happens on the field. Yeah, I, look, when you mention, I mean, the University of Georgia fandom, I think is a very, you know, that, that that's a very special fandom that in, in some ways they do just about everything right. I mean, they're dominant on the field. They've got a great community atmosphere they've and they and, and they might have the best mascot in all of college football right so and but i think that's a great point that it's the what the marketing folks can do is on the is on the edges to really make to really make everything resonate okay let's talk about uh, extreme fan behavior and when i mentioned to some folks that uh, we were going to be talking on the on the show they said uh they would be very interested in knowing what's what happens in Europe when you have these 
riots. We had one in Indonesia not too long ago. How can fans get that revved up that it would cause problems like this? And I think you're touching on, frankly, why I, I love the topic. I mean, when, when I think, you know, American sports fans think there's craziness, right? Because there's, you know, there, there's a there's folks that are painting up their faces and sitting in the in the cheap seats, right? Um, there, but there's, I think there's different levels, right? I mean, you know, baseball fans are frankly kind of polite. You go to SEC football and you see kind of this different animal, right, where folks are standing for three hours. But as Americans, what we don't realize is that it, it truly is this whole other thing when, when you cross, when you go to Europe or, or South America and their love of soccer. Um, I, I think the fundamental point, though, is that they're still capturing something that maybe we've largely lost in the States in that they are truly affiliated with their clubs, right? I mean, if I have European kids in my class at Emory, they all have a favorite soccer team. And there is no doubt about who their favorite soccer team is, right? Um, you know, you'll see Americans, and they'll they'll have they'll wear eight different jerseys to class throughout the semester. They are firmly committed, and so it's that strength of the community. It's it's um, you know, in some ways, you know, I'm a more of a statistician by training, but this is a great topic because you get into psychology and you get into even like the notion of anthropology, right? These are, these are in some ways tribes that are together and they're totally built around the soccer team. I guess the Indonesia incident, there were 125 people killed. Most of them, I think, because tear gas was sprayed, but still it all began with, you know, fans going at each other and then it just escalated. You mentioned in the study that baby boomers prefer set-piece games like baseball while younger people like continuous action. I guess that's no surprise, right? The, you know, some of the results are, let's say, subject to interpretation. So when I'm looking at the results and I see that the older fans really are, look, everyone loves football, but baseball does so much better amongst older fans versus, let's say, basketball or esports or with, with, in soccer with the younger fans. And so, look, one piece of speculation might be that, you know, as you age, maybe you enjoy more of this kind of discrete action of here's an event, then watch the next thing versus this continuous flow. Um, and it, but again, on some of this stuff, it's like I'm, I'm sort of acting as every man. And it's like, as I age, Gary, uh, there's something really kind of beautiful about baseball, right? But as a younger man, I was probably much more of a basketball fan. Now, Michael Jordan was in Chicago at, at that point. But I can appreciate, you know, taste change is, is part of, I think, the story here. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I agree with that. I think uh, now it's more football for the younger people and basketball. Basketball has become huge, even internationally. Do you see that um, perhaps taking over in some of the, you know, European locations? I know the league, NFL and NBA are trying to make a move there. I don't think it's any secret that that's been a long-term goal of the NBA uh, with the, and, and I think, you know, a lot of the strategy was that they would try and dominate the Chinese marketplace or they would try and grow in China. I mean, look, it's always a reality check for American sports fans when you do the math on this stuff. When you say, hey, you know, in the United States, the NBA finals draw, let's say 10 to 15 million folks, depending on who's watching. China has 600 million potential basketball fans out of a population of, you know, 1.5 billion. 
And so the the move, I think the I think almost everyone is seeing that the real growth is to go beyond that kind of core American heritage or traditional sports fan to build something international. International. Look, the NBA would like to expand into China. Um, Live Golf has, is clearly an international play, right? It's like to get the whole world watching. Um, what was it about a year ago? There was a, it was a, the, the concept of taking the top several soccer teams from the English League and from the Spanish League. You know, I think that's that, that might be a trend that we're seeing. Look, Gary, we're probably going to see this in college football when it's just the Big Ten and the SEC as the two power conferences. Absolutely. A couple of other things. You said female fandom is strongest in narrative driven sports like Olympics and weakest in esports. Uh, I guess I can see I definitely can see the Olympic tie in, uh, but they haven't caught on to esports yet, huh? <sighs> Yeah, it's. I think that's a big issue for the. Look, let me let me ask you a question, Gary. Is esports a sport? <laughs> that is a good question. I I don't know. I mean, I think it's work going into that realm of where people used to ask: Is golf really a sport? Is uh, bowling, bowling, auto racing, things like that? So. I think eventually, as they get leagues and fans and everything, maybe it is. And it, and it requires skill. I've never really participated, but I guess it requires uh, a pretty good degree of skill. Yeah, it, it really does. I mean, it, and part of the reason why I ask you if it's esports is a sport is that, you know, I've come to believe that it's, you know, esports is very much connected to video gaming. Women play video games industry folks will tell you women play video games as much as men play video games. They tend to be different games, right? Though it's, it's and, and like the stereotypes largely apply of, you know, the young man playing Call of Duty and the woman playing Candy Crush. Um, when I look at the data, what I tend to see is that esports ends up almost being more aligned with, it's, it's almost this true hybrid of being like half characteristics of entertainment and half characteristics of sport. Um, so it'll be, it, it's a fun one to watch to see how this is going to evolve. You know, there, there's some folks in Atlanta that are really passionate about esports and trying to do things like build, you know, essentially an Atlanta esports team. I think that's the real dilemma for those guys is how do you actually, well, you know, we sort of mentioned what's special about sports is that it goes from age six to age 90 and you're connected to a local community. I don't know that esports can actually overcome that, right? Are, are the people going to be playing the same video games now? You know, are they going to be playing the same video games 60 years from now? Seems doubtful. Um, is there any reason to root for an esports team that's based in Atlanta? Again, the connection's just, it's, it's not quite there. Yeah. Uh, and maybe the rivalries will be regional or just within a city, uh, much like some other sports. And I will, I will look, Gary, I, I'm 55, so I will fully admit that when I first time I saw esports, I had a PhD student that was literally not playing video games at his desk. He was watching people playing video games. Kind of blew me away. So I'm a I'm a visitor to that to that spectacle. This this other finding kind of uh, interested me. The politically conservative people have the highest rates of fandom but feel underappreciated by professional sports leagues. Conservatives are most associated with sports fandom. Explain that one. 
Yeah, that's an interesting one. And I'm, I'm, I'm putting together a, a fuller report on that issue that I'll put up on the, on the web. The data is unambiguous. Uh, the rates of fandom amongst people that lean towards more conservative are much higher than amongst people that lean liberal. Now, it does vary some by sport, and and some you might anticipate. You know, the conservatives tend to be more skewed towards baseball, where well, liberals might be stronger with basketball. But across every sport, if you tell me you're conservative, there's a higher probability that you're going to be a sports fan than if you tell me you're a liberal. Um but when you dig into the data and look after the last couple of years, I mean, let, let's not pretend, you know, sports has been, become very politicized over the last couple of years with kneeling controversies. You know, here in Atlanta, we had a baseball game, an all-star game that was essentially moved out due to political pressures. I think the conservative fans have felt that. And so I think alienation is definitely something that's occurring. So, you know, conservatives are the core sports fan. But if you ask them questions about, do the leagues care about me? They don't think they do. If you ask them, you know, do you want to, do you want to be a professional athlete? The, is it aspirational? You get lower rates than amongst liberals. So there's truly a disconnect at the moment. Is there any sport you think that's really in danger as you see sports fandom, you know, wane a little bit? <laughs> well, you know, danger is an interesting word. Baseball used to be the American sport, and it wasn't that long ago that, you know, Barry, Barry Bonds might have been the most famous U.S. athlete 10, 15 years ago. Now, I suspect if you're list, listing, you know, most prominent U.S. athletes, there's not a baseball player in the top 20. So, you know, baseball may be in danger of becoming this clear number three or potentially even number four sport over the long term. You know, and and maybe this is a function of, and you might feel this way too. You know, just based on the America I grew up in, grew up in, it doesn't seem quite right to me. So baseball may be finding themselves relegated to less of a mainstream position in the, you know, in the in the catalog of sports. You triggered another thought, and that is, how much does one individual player uh, mean to a team? or to fans' reaction to that. You mentioned Bonds, and, and there could be a negative and a positive. An Aaron Judge situation, very positive for New York fans. Barry Bonds, uh, now you've got, uh, who is it, uh, Deshaun Watson, who signed with Cleveland after you know his, his issues with sexual harassment and so on. And I know, talking to a lot of people in Cleveland, they're like, I'm washing my hands of this team because I, I can't stand that guy. So do you see that a lot? Uh, I mean, can it change a, an individual's opinion, take them away from sports? Uh, I mean, I think there's always complexity in those situations. Uh, like I said, Bonds was probably the biggest thing in American sports, and it was definitely a situation where he crashed and burned. Um, you know, where, where baseball's at... I mean, look, you, you sort of go through the timeline. You know, we had the 90, we lost the 94 World Series or 95 World Series. Uh, baseball responded with some more, you know, the Blue Ribbon Committee for some revenue sharing, maybe a juiced ball, a PED era, lots of home runs sort of became sort of main, you know, kind of the, the, the highlight again. And then it all, it all fell apart. And I don't think they've, 
they've really recovered. I mean, th- this last baseball season, you know, you had a team that won 111 games in the Dodgers, which I think is the fifth best record of all time. And you had a guy in New York City hit 62 home runs. And on Twitter, they're complaining that the college football games are going away to show his at-bats. Right. So it's, you know, is that a consequence of the PED scandals? It, it may be. Um, Deshaun Watson, I, I, I want to say something that I'm, I feel like it might get me into a little bit of trouble. But you know what? I'm going to say it. If he goes to Cleveland and they win, you know, if, if he starts playing at week 11, you know, and they make a playoff run and they go to the the AFC championship game or, or to the Super Bowl. And remember, Cleveland's not a bad team. And Watson, you know, he, he's he's coming off a layoff. Watson's a very good quarterback. He takes Cleveland to the Super Bowl. Stands are going to be full. TVs are going to be tuned in. You know, no doubt about it. It's a forgiving culture, I guess, for sure. Yeah, if you're winning. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, listen, what's next for you now? What other studies do you have coming up? Well, like I said, I'm going to pup, I'm going to put out the report on the on the political aspect of fandom. From there, I'm actually going to dig a little bit into the um, essentially almost looking at game by game. And and the big one I got coming up and a sort of I, I even know the results. So I, I don't want to spoil it, though, is a look at brand equity in the NBA. So rating the teams from one to 30 in terms of who has the most passion, whatever word you want to use, the best fans, the most loyal fans, the most valuable fans. And so that'll be out there probably about a week or two into the NBA season. Now, where do uh, people find your studies? Is there a website for this? My online home is fandomanalytics.com. And so that's where you'll find all the studies linked to the podcast. Uh, So like you you mentioned, I'm a a professor at Emory. This is my public scholarship. This is sort of my, in some ways, Gary, what I think I'm doing is I'm offering a class on sports analytics and fan analytics to the general public at that website. Is there a course at Emory that relates to this in any way? Oh, I, I teach a class on sports marketing at the undergraduate level and a course on pure uh, on sports analytics in our um, data and our data scientist program called an MSBA. And do you have a podcast? I think you do, right? Yeah, we call it Fanalytics. <laughs> Great. Well, listen, this has been terrific again. We really appreciate you coming on board here. And uh, hopefully we can do it again when another one of these studies come out. And uh, thanks again. Anytime. It's always a pleasure. Our guest has been Mike Lewis. He's a marketing professor at the Goisweta School of Business, Emory University. And uh, again, he, uh, he's a second-time offender here on Sports Across the Board. Thank you all for joining us, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to Sports Across the Board. Join us next time as we take you behind the scenes on everything from the big events and the big issues to discoveries that are changing the world of sports. Sports Across the Board is an exclusive presentation of the McKillops Group. If you like what you've heard, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.